Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Radio Update starts now. Playoff time in basketball and hockey. I'm Jeff Nathanson checking the scoreboard from the playoff action. The NHL game three between the Penguins and the Flyers. Remember game one was a Pittsburgh blowout. The Flyers rallied to take game two in Pittsburgh, so they split the first two. Game three was earlier today in Philadelphia, but the game was all Penguins. He stood behind Brian Elliott, who had a tough time in the second half with a core injury. Middle of February to the tail end of the regular season, played the final two regular season games. Hornquist, a wraparound chance for Crosby. He scores! Sidney Crosby picks up the loose change, circles the net, and Pittsburgh is off and running. And the Penguins go, would go on to win 5-1 to one for Crosby. It's his fourth goal of the playoffs already. It was only three games in. Pittsburgh leads Philadelphia two games to one in that series, the first-round series. End of one period, Minnesota leading Winnipeg 2-1. to one. That's significant because the Wild are down two zip in that series. Also in progress right now, the Washington Capitals leading at home against the Columbus Blue Jackets, one nothing. That is in the first period still to come. Vegas and L.A., the Vegas Golden Knights lead that series two games to none by sweeping the first two games up in Vegas. Checking the NBA two finals in the Pacers upset the Cavaliers 98 to 80 and with the Celtics in overtime over the Bucks 113 to 107. They're playing right now in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Third quarter, five minutes to go in the third. Oklahoma City leading the Utah Jazz 68-61. The late game in the NBA tonight is Minnesota and Houston. That's at 9 o'clock Eastern. On to baseball, it's the Padres beating the Giants 10-1. That's a final. Dodgers beat the Diamondbacks 7-2. Athletics over the Mariners 2-1 for all the baseball scores. NBCSportsRadio.com. One baseball game later, Texas Rangers, Houston Astros just about to start. This is NBC Sports Radio. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. It's time to shop in the cool, relaxed comfort of the Tri-City Shopping Center in Redlands, conveniently located on the I-10 freeway between the Alabama and Tennessee exits. Bring the kids to and watch them play in the only indoor fun center. High Five Indoor Playground, where parents are welcomed on the playground. Birthday celebrations are encouraged, so make plans for some great fun at the mall. More reasons why the Tri-City Center is called the Mall with a Heart.
If you're looking for a full or part-time sales position and you have radio, TV, or print media experience, KCAA has a great opportunity waiting for you that pays the highest commissions in the market. KCAA is the only station in the IE that broadcasts on three frequencies, so advertisers receive three ads for one low rate. This makes KCAA a must-buy for every local business. If you're interested in a sales position with us, email CEO at KCAARadio.com. This segment is sponsored by Tammy Sutherland of Coldwell Banker, Kivett Teeters Realty, where she makes it her business to put happy people in happy homes. It's Tammy Sutherland's passion to list your house and put you in just the right house that you could call home. She made so much extra effort to sell our house and make sure that we understood every step of the way. Tammy always had our best interests at heart. I didn't think we'd ever find a house uh, we loved, but with Tammy's help, we did. Now I get to mow the lawn every weekend. (laughs) But then again, that's why we had kids. Hey, Tyler. Tammy did way more than we ever expected in a real estate agent. Without Tammy, we would still be renting. So if you want your perfect house, contact Tammy Sutherland at Caldwell Banker, Kivett Teeters Realty in Yukaipa, across from Yukaipa High School. Whether you're looking to buy or sell, it's homesbytammy.net or on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Realtor Tammy Sutherland at 909-556-2094 for Realtor Tammy Sutherland. And we thank her for her support. This segment of programming sponsored by CyberTime Network Communications. How's your internet? Feeling boxed in with the high costs of the internet? Ready for a better internet service? Then you're ready for CyberTime. Yes, there's an alternative to those big corporate internet service providers. It's CyberTime Network Communications. CyberTime is so good, they provide all the connectivity for this radio station. Crisp, cool, fast and sleek. CyberTime uses the latest leading-edge microwave technology. No wires, no cables, no sharing, and they're able to offer clients a safe, reliable, public or private network that fits almost any budget size. And several cities rely on CyberTime's microwave private network for their most critical mission applications. Get connected. Stay connected. Get smart. Get CyberTime. You can Google, text, or call CyberTime Network Communications at 909-795-9559. That's 909-795-9559. Listen to KCAA Loma Linda for less confrontation and more information. Hey! Thank you for tuning in for this edition of Justice Watch with Attorney Zulu Ali. I'm Attorney Zulu Ali, and I have the Justice Watch crew with me, Rosa Nunez and Michael Clark. This week, like we do every Sunday, we'll talk about important and critical legal issues affecting our community. Our guest today is Dr. Akil Bashir. Dr. Bashir is founder and CEO of Professional Community Intervention Training Institute, which is the first certified 18-week community violence intercession uh, gang intervention institute. Mr. Bashir has been described as one of the nation's most premier public safety crisis intercession violence elimination professionals in society today. Being uh, uh, one of the most respected, sought-after certified hands-on practitioners and instructors in this field, uh, Dr. Bashir teaches, instructs, and consults with educational entities, gang intervention teams, private industry, select law enforcement personnel, emergency responders, and a host of others in understanding and interaction with gangs and other issues regarding crisis intervention. 
Dr. Bashir also has a doctorate degree from the Chicago School of Psychology. So I want to thank Dr. Bashir for being with us today. Well, I'm honored to be here. So today we'll be discussing the recent killing of uh, Stephon Clark by police in Sacramento last month. Uh, we'll also discuss the use of deadly force in our communities, crisis or justification. And uh, just for those of you who do not or may not uh, be aware of the issue regarding Mr. Uh, Stephen Clark and his violent and brutal death that happened earlier on March the 18th, 2018, last month, police officers responded to a call of car break-ins at a Meadowview uh, neighborhood in Sacramento, California. That night, Stephon Clark, who was unarmed, and he was a 22-year-old father of two, was struck eight times in his grandmother's backyard. And according to news sources, the county sheriff's department helicopter joined the search and hovered above, at one point telling officers that a suspect had pick up, picked up a crowbar. The officers eventually spotted Mr. Clark, who appears to have run from them in his, into his grandmother's backyard. Uh, the body camera video and the officers heard shouting the word gun repeatedly and opening fire almost immediately. So no weapon was found on Mr. Clark's body, and the only object that was found was his cell phone. So, uh, Dr. Bashir, I wanted to see if I could get you to give us your general analysis of what happened in that particular case. Sure. Um, that, as well as the hundreds, if not thousands, of other cases uh, that we see on an ongoing basis uh, throughout this country, um, you know, the facts speak for themselves. It's really not the circumstances of what transpired. At the end of the day, it's the conclusion of what happened, which was another life lost. And why was that life lost? Was it based on uh, uh, dysfunctional uh, policies? Was it based on uh, the perception of the officers? What was it actually based on? Until we actually understand that we have to look at the process that these officers make their split-second decisions at the end of the day and what constitutes that, we're going to continue to see these type of deaths uh, occur throughout the country, uh, Brother Ali. Okay. So I know that basically, uh, and, and again, I'm not quite sure, and I don't know whether it was, uh, uh, I'm assuming it was city police officers that were involved mm -hmm. in the shooting, Mm -hmm. And obviously, we don't have any, any indication as to what their use of force policies may have been. But I know that basically uh, the purpose of having a use of force policy, especially initially one of the objectives, is to make sure that um, it, is, it builds some sort of trust in keeping civilians safe. I mean, so, so it seems like based upon what has been happening in our communities, uh, you know, for a very long period of time, is that these policies, whether they're following the policies, is, 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 I'm not quite sure, but it does seem that basically the whole idea of keeping civilians safe isn't something that seems to be the focal point of these policies. Well, when you look at a policy, it's an old saying, uh, if you don't like the output, you've got to change the input. And if the policies are not achieving the goals that they were structured to do, uh, they need to be revised. Now, when you look at a policy, a policy is predicated on certain modes of operandi, certain skill sets, and this is training. We always hear officers need more training, et cetera. Well, yes, that's true they need more training, but we don't need operational training because the policies that continue to be put in place are not being followed. What we need is psychological training. We need to understand uh, the perception that these officers have embraced in terms of dealing with individuals of color in their community. When you look at a situation of a perception, 
perception, and the perception is reality to the individual, whosoever that perception is. The perception is had, and then from the perception, what you'll get is uh, evaluational process. What you'll get is a person thinking that from that perception, I'm going to put my value system in place. Now, if my value system in place, which is the indicative of rights and wrong, if that value system in place is not inherently coming from me, if it's coming from an operational structure, in this case, a police department, that is what I'm going to follow and that is going to set my principles. If that becomes the principles and if I, as a police officer, am constantly being told that these communities of color are adversarial, these communities, uh, we have to arm you from a military standpoint, we've got to get you thinking from a military standpoint, ultimately, there's going to be an adversary that I'm going to look to that is going to be my enemy that I'm going to want to destroy. So that becomes my thinking process. And when you think about an adversary, an adversary is one that you either control, terminate, or eradicate. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that you, when you talk about the, the mindset of a police officer, I believe that I know that a police officer can only use deadly force under two situations. Um, one is to protect the, the life of their selves or the life of another innocent party. And the other one is basically what, you know, what it had actually been known as the fleeing felon uh, right. principle where someone right. is a probable cause to believe that a fleeing felon may pose a danger to to someone else so what's happening of course in the uh, you know uh, uh, when, when these officers are analyzed they're supposed to be when it talks about what is reasonable it has to be objectively reasonable from an objective yes. officer's perspective and I think that when you talk about an objective officer's perspective then you know what does matter or, or what has come into play is what would a what an what an objective officer think in a particular situation i know in this particular ca uh, case where you're talking about mr clark who apparently allegedly had been involved in 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 a minor crime i would imagine i'm assuming that we haven't heard anything other than potentially some sort of vandalism potentially we don't know that for sure but at least that's what I've, I've, I've heard. Correct. Now, assuming that you're chasing someone who is actually involved in some sort of vandal vandalism type of crime, then obviously, and he's fleeing from you, then, you know, uh, there was no reason to believe based upon that analysis that he was basic, that he had a gun. Well, fleeing is the key word, mm. going away from the threat. Right. See, in order for it to be an intimate threat, it has to be a threat that is normally coming towards you. So number one, uh, we have to uh, analyze, okay, was he going? And from the uh, number of shots and where they were placed throughout the body, uh, he, was not in the, uh, he was not in the advancing mode. Number two, the officers never identified themselves. So when you are thinking about the culture, back to perception of a person of color in a community that is dark, and you hear people coming at you, you hear people calling your name, but they don't identify, even if he knew they were police officers, the threat, the perception is that the possibility of me losing my life in my engagement with these police officers is extremely high based on past situations. So. His response to that was to probably try to run defensively and get some type of cover. I can't speak for the man, unfortunately, his past, but the perception is that his life was in danger to him. And if we look at the normality of people of color in these communities and their relationship with police officers, that would be probably the normal thinking of 75 to 80 percent of the people of color, especially being a young black man between the age of 16 and 25 years of age. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so true. I mean, because we've seen so much of, of what's happening in, in the community and these continuous issues regarding the, uh, the and the problem, of course, is that hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We cannot really have a, a serious dialogue because, unfortunately, uh, we tend to have a, a, a community where if you want to talk about the issues, mm-hmm. you're either anti-police or pro-police. And, you know, you, you kind of, unfortunately, because we've been conditioned to, um, you know, only have one particular type of viewpoint that it, it creates a problem with discussing and having a dialogue about the issue. 100% correct. You know, I've tra- trained over uh, 12, 1,300 uh, LAPD and law enforcement officers throughout the country. Uh, the first thing we do when we're sitting down with them, we establish a perspective of equality. They know we're coming on equal terms. We're not coming from a subservient position. We're not coming from a position of uh, inferiority in terms of that relationship. And unfortunately, that's what uh, officers are used to. Now, I do need to say this. You know, the diametric opposing uh, construct here is, yes, the use of force, and use of force based on the average normal police officer, or as you so excellently alluded to. But then the counterbalance is, uh, shoot to kill. Mm-hmm. Right. See, <laughs> that's a diametric opposing opposite. Why is the first uh, rule of law in an engagement, if you shoot, you shoot to kill? You know, I'm a firearms expert. I understand the concept of pulling a gun, and if you pull that gun, you shoot to kill. But at the end of the day, when the right to take a person's life is based on your perception, the higher standard is on you as a police officer to make sure that you have went through a total process of evaluation and have done everything possible to make sure you don't have to terminate that life. The termination of life should be the last resort, not the first resort. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the thing when you see all of these cases. I mean, of course, we've got, you know, hundreds of cases where there's an allegation that the officer's life was in danger. However, there was no, you know, guns was not found in the incident. They thought that their lives was in danger, but ultimately that wasn't the case. After you find that after the fact that the individual uh, life has been terminated based upon some sort of perception that they call that is objectively reasonable. So I think that obviously what we've, the issue right now and, and really the solution, and of course we'll talk about that a little bit more, is obviously the whole issue of accountability. Uh, and, and, and really what is happening is that basically the number of officers who are, who are uh, prosecuted uh, regarding uh, you know, these shootings, the the conviction rate is extremely low. I mean, mm-hmm. much, much lower than it is for, for the average citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the precursor to that is when you begin to start talking about the ability of a law enforcement agency to, uh, you know, to police up its own ranks. And obviously, you know, I think that no agency should be involved in any of its to to do its own investigation because there's a conflict of interest there because yes, obviously is. the agency 
is ultimately going to be liable for any officer who is found responsible for an unlawful killing. And not only the agency itself, the city, mm -hmm. as well as even oftentimes, you know, lack of supervision. So, I mean, so what is your take on the issue of, of this uh, inherent conflict when it comes to uh, police policing up their own ranks? I think it's a definite cancer. Let me, let me be real clear to the listening public and all involved. There are some outstanding police officers out there. Uh, you have to look at the individual perception of the officers. It's, it's, it's the issue is the process. See, the process and the systematic structure in which they operate from. Like I said, when we hear about training, it's a constant reference to operational protocol being established, how skill sets are developed, how protocol is developed, when we need to be looking at the behavioral perspective in terms of what they're being taught. Something is wrong inherently with the structure in which they operate from. And to specifically go to your question in terms of uh, them policing themselves, that's ludicrous. We have seen historically, time and time again, when they police themselves, we get the same outcome at the end of the day. When we look at the societal perspective, and society plays a large role in this, because if I establish my belief system based on those uh, uh, perceptions at the end of the day. My belief system either changes or stays the same based on the consequences of that system. If I have no consequences of that belief system, I am going to reinforce the fact that that is a, that my belief system is okay. So from that, what happens is there's no need for me to psychologically change the construct. I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing because it's from my perspective, it's, it's okay. Uh, from the societal perspective, it's okay. When the courts tell me continuously that there is no issue for what I'm doing in terms of how I operate, then I got a threefold uh, tri-nexus which tells me that I'm doing the right thing the right way. Mm -hmm. We wonder why we keep going back to the same dynamic of this same picture occurring year after year, decade after decade. This has been occurring since the 1950s, and we haven't been able to solve it. That is because infrastructurally, operationally, the process has not changed right. uh, and, and that kind of you know has always been an issue with regards to um, power you know power in and of itself I mean we, we've known through history that man has always had you know messes up power and unfortunately uh, if you don't have the, the proper uh, mechanisms and mechanisms in place to check people when they abuse those powers because I mean there's a there's a, right. there's a strong hypocrisy to the manner in which police officers are treated and a manner in which the average citizen is being treated and obviously if a average citizen is being held to a higher standard than even a police officer then basically what you're doing is that he's just going to abuse the power. I mean, it just, it's just part of human nature, unfortunately. We've seen that mm -hmm. time and time again. And one of the things that um, I believe is significant is I, I think that until we begin to start putting mechanism, mechanisms in place to check these officers, then nothing is going to actually change. And, 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 and yes. you know, like you said, I mean, every officer clearly is not a bad officer. That's right. not, but you cannot change the, um, there's, there's, there's no room for change. So what happens is when you're trying to dialogue in order to make that change, they change the narrative. And they change the, the, the narrative by accusing you of being anti-police. Yes. And so, 
you know, I'm of the position that, and, and, and we've had this discussion before. I remember where there was a situation in, in Texas where an officer was violently killed um, innocently. And, you know, our outrage was just as intense. And we had, you know, one of, the, one of our workshops right after that happened. And we were just as enraged by the fact that this officer was violently killed. And so it seems that, you know, you, you un it's, it's hard to understand how when we dialogue, we would have the same show. If an officer was violently killed innocently, we would be just as outraged. Yes. As we would if some civilian was killed innocently. And, and you know, yeah. I, I don't understand how that continues to be an issue where we can't have that dialogue uh because people don't value the lives of certain people the same way they value the lives of others. You know, that was well said, Brother Ali. Look, when you stand for justice, uh, you stand for justice across the board. You don't get to pick and choose who that justice that you will put in place uh, should be significant of. So if you see a person of color, non-color, if you see a person uh, being treated uh, 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 from a perspective of uh, a lack of equality, I can go on and on and on. If you are a true stander for justice, you're going to stand up across the board for that person. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, people have a tendency when they don't understand uh, uh, they become very defensive and I think that's what police departments have done traditionally because they don't understand the outrage of the marginalized communities that are feeling like they're being terrorized by the police department the police department see it in their definition as a suppressive force we've got to realize police departments are uh, in their mode of operandi excuse me is suppression that is their tactic mm -hmm. and so when you're suppressing uh, you have to be fair in that process of suppression we all know that there is a moral need and a structural need for law but that law has to be a fair law that those people that are being uh, uh, having that law implemented on them feel like at the end of the day they have a fair process of inclusion in what that law dictates marginalized communities don't feel that the process is fair so then when they see the police officers who are enforcing an unfair process the police officers become a double t a, a, a target in terms of their standard because uh, it's a double whammy for those in communities of color and then there's a normal resistance so the the hesitation and the defensiveness by the uh, people in these marginalized communities is based on the fact that they feel a process is not uh, inclusive of them and is not being uh, 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 implemented for for uh, for their concerns and for their needs mm. that's really what we're up against back to power you mentioned some about power which is very important you know there's different types of power and are we talking about a legitimate power or are we talking about a coerce a very corrosive power. We have to look when we talk about the application of power. Power speaks to power, and this is the way power works. So if you're a subservient uh, to those that are bringing the power and you can't answer that power, that power is going to consume you to a large degree. That's how power works. But power respects an equal degree of power, and unfortunately, most people in marginalized communities, communities of color, even some white communities, don't have that same uh, uh, catalyst of equation to, to, to match. So it becomes an imbalanced uh, process of uh, unjust uh, enforcement. Right, right. And one of the other issues is that one of the things that you know, um, we've been involved in is the whole issue of the jury reform. And, and for me, I believe that um, 
one of the things that the community should actually focus on as far as solution is concerned is that, you know, we need to actually have a more diverse jury pool. Definitely. You know, and I'm just saying Definitely. that from a perspective of not only when you're talking about individuals who are being accused of, of criminal acts, but also when you're talking about law enforcement officers as well. They need to be, you know, jury, the jury is the, the fact finder. When we talk about what is object, objectable, objectionably reasonable, then the jury who's, who pool is the one. And so what, what is happening is when you start seeing these jury pools, and I was, you know, myself as an attorney, I mm -hmm. think that we, we've discussed, and I know that you, you, you know, in your experience testifying as, as an expert witness, and I know that our producers, we've had these discussions as well, is that you have a jury pool that does not look anything like the communities that they're serving. So when you have an individual in a community that is accused of committing a criminal act, it's not asking the, asking the jury to let someone go because they look like you. Because these, the, in these, these, communities, these communities are just as fearful of crime as anybody else. They're actually more fearful than anyone else. However, they want to make sure that the, ch the proper checks and balances are in place. And what I don't understand is how you can go to uh, a trial and the jury pool is not reflective of the community. You know, you can go, uh, yes. that, that, that definitely has to change. And if you have yes. a more diverse uh, jury pool, then officers who were charged with, crim with these criminal acts are going to be held to answer properly and they're going to have a diverse and truly objectionable and fair and impartial jury and the same thing would be for people who are accused of crime you're going to see a lower degree a lower number of people who are being prosecuted unlawfully and more officers who are clearly going to probably be prosecuted more often yes. if you have a more diverse jury pool well let's break that down mm -hmm. okay because what you said is is spot on look Let's take the average white person in their relationship to police officers. The average white person has a constructive relationship for the most part. Police treat them differently. So their perception is going to be totally different from your engagement or my engagement as a Latino, as a black person, et cetera, because we have a different uh, engagement with them. Now, when you look at the normality, see, this is what people don't understand. When you're going to try to analyze a situation, you got to look at a person's normality. What is their normal context of their operating sphere? What are they seeing? in a process? What are they engaging with? What is their interaction? And if I can't understand your normality, I can never get to the essence of your thinking process, therefore never understanding what your perception is of that actual engagement. So if I can't understand your normality, I am going to operate from my normality. If my normality has been a positive, constructive relationship, I am not going to be able to see how yours was diametrically in opposite of mine. So I'm going to lean in favor of the actual police officers because I can relate to that mode of operandi and I cannot even envision your mode. Right. It's, this, is, this is no rocket science. When mm -hmm. we really stop and think about what is going on in, the, in the, the narrative that is on board, it is imperative that that, uh, that jury structure has to represent uh, the at least a fair representation of when we stop and think about it, not the individual, but the normality in which that individual thinks from. 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Exactly. That, that, that's so true. I mean, and, and it's the same way with when you talk about, um, I don't know if people know this, but whenever a police officer testifies in a trial, it is actually a misconduct for a jury yes to assume that the office, to evaluate an officer's testimony differently than they evaluate anybody else's testimony. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really, if someone uh, during jury selection tells the judge that I believe an officer before more than I believe anybody else, then obviously there's constitutional mm-hmm. grounds to exclude mm-hmm. that individual. So clearly if you have an officer who's testifying, uh, who has one perspective, and a jury who has a, a certain perspective of how they actually see police officers, then, you know, they're going to just automatically assume that the officer's telling the truth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's unfair, especially oftentimes when there's witnesses that oftentimes have testimony that may conflict with this officer. Or you're supposed to presume the individual to be innocent. And, and what is amazing to me, and I, I mean, like you, Doc, I've been in the game for quite some time mm-hmm. as a police officer myself and as a criminal defense attorney. I've never f- met a person accused of a crime that would ever say, I should be assumed to be guilty. You know what I mean? Everybody, it's amazing how people change their perspective when they're accused of something. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, and, 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 and unless you understand, if, unless you have that type of empathy of understanding, and if I'm sitting in that seat, if I'm looking at this man and I presume him to be innocent, then the prosecutor has an uphill battle. But if you're, if you're looking at it from the other perspective and you're thinking he's automatically guilty, then you're not giving him a fair trial. You're That's not right. allowing it. That's right. And I, and I think that when you have individuals, and I'm going to, I'm not really keen on this whole conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican. I'm not really a paradigm type of person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, you know, I think that's somebody who's been trained. I think if you're educated, mm-hmm. you have to think for yourself. That's right. And so my thing is, is that basically when you're thinking about justice, there is no socioeconomic political paradigm that should interfere with the way that you're viewing, you know, um, uh, a criminal case. That's right. And uh, and I think until we make people truly understand and, and people who are these believe in our country, believe in our Constitution and believe in the principles for which, you know, we all believe in, uh, then if you really believe in it, believe in it. You know, you can't say that you are a true American and truly believe in American principles and not be outraged 
when a young innocent man is killed unjustly and unlawfully. I, I, I just I just don't understand that whole ideology. Well, I piggyback on that because, and just be clear, it has been apparent that there has been a ravage of communities of color. Uh, we've died tragically at the hands of those who are supposed to be protectors, et cetera. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper here, Brother Ali, because regardless of what's brought to the table, until we change the psychological direction of a thinking process of an officer, we are going to be combating this problem uh, for, for years to come. Why is that so important? When you look at the savage nature of these deaths and how they occur, let me tell you something. There has to be something psychologically which tells me in my mind that I have an inherent right to destroy to this degree. You can't do this type of damage and not feel any reserve in the process. So if the type of deaths that we see occurring on the ongoing basis and those deaths are occurring so quickly, there has been inherent acceptance of the fact that I have ultimately the right. I don't know if it's a God-given right, uh, a political right, or a job-oriented right, but the acceptance has already happened. And so you can bring anything on board. You can bring as many rules, as many laws as many training methodologies, as many uh, um, systems of accountability, but until that officer changed the fact that I do not have the right of this type of destruction, yes, I have a right to enforce this law. I have a right to apprehend. I have a right to arrest. And at the end of the day, if this individual is trying to terminate my life or somebody else's life, I have the right to remove him so that threat will be lessened to the larger populace. But that is a lot that has to be uh, understood, a lot that has to be engaged. And we're talking about all that's coming out uh, when that officer makes that final decision for what he has to do. So my, my point is there has to be a process. There has to be a thinking process I'm going through at the end of the day. So if I reach that conclusion to take a life, I can sit back and say I am validated. I was validated by the circumstances, the behaviors, and the actions of the individual. And if I didn't terminate that life, there was going to be more of a cancer that would have transpired, more of an explosion of that threat as opposed to not. So when I jump out of the car and almost in a matter of seconds, minutes, I take that life, obviously there has not been me going through that thinking process. Now I in no way am going to try to think for every officer out there. They have some split second decisions that they have to make. I understand that, like I said, I train them, I'm a practitioner, I'm on the ground, I know what happens out there. But for the most part, there still has to be a check and balance, a check and balance of personal discipline that the officer has to take. And when that life is taking at the end of the day, they could feel justified across the board. But the way things are happening now, there is too much uh, acceptance of the fact that I can terminate this life and I have the right to, and the consequential mechanism of accountability agrees with me having that right. And so because of that, I'm going to continue to do what I do. This is my process. I'm going to use that process. And lastly, look, I always say this as we relate to violence. When an individual using, uh, uses violence, uh, they feel that there's very few other options for them. Now, if I continue to use that violence, I get better at that violence. If that violence at the end of the day is giving me the results and the rewards that I want, guess what? I'm going to continue to use that violence and I'm going to refine that violence. And it seems like inherently that is what's going on with these police shootings, uh, with the, uh, the, the dogmatic uh, uh, engagement that some of the officers have and just the overall mentality of what we see. Again, back to those good officers, we want to give you your props, but let's be, let's 
just be real clear here. You have a system that is corrupt, that needs to be changed, that is dysfunctional, and is doing disservice to such a large populace of this, uh, uh, of, of this uh, societal structure that there has to be changes, and those good officers out there should be leading the charge for those changes to happen. That's true. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing. I mean, uh, the thing about the culture of policing, I think the culture of policing being a paramilitary type of culture, it's really, off, it's really, really difficult for officers to police up their own ranks, and primarily it's because it's like going into battle, you know. I mean, yes. it, it, you know, it's, yes. it, you know you, they're, they're brothers. You know, these are individuals that depend on each other for their lives going home at the end of the day. Yeah. And so, obviously, uh, the relationship that you have with your fellow officers is oftentimes different than a relationship that you have with, uh, with the public. And you'll find that a lot of officers who, and at least, you know, in, in my experience, many officers who basically ultimately even end up getting disciplined or even losing their jobs because of the fact that they had been involved in some sort of corruption or some sort of brutality, they have very, very um, positive uh, uh, praise from their fellow officers. You know what I mean? I mean, they might mm -hmm. seem great among their fellow officers and they might in their mind see see it as being justified but i think that you know the psychosis of a police officer and the things that he has to deal with on a daily basis i think sometimes i mean it does you, the same way that you see these guys who are coming back from battle and coming back from war and i have a veterans legal clinic and i deal with with veterans who suffer from PTSD and oftentimes these officers who are coming back are actually ultimately coming right from the battlefield and right into police departments yes. and they've never had yes. any of that stuff checked yes. and sometimes the the same thing it, it continues to to uh, uh, to happen to them so you know I mean there's a, there's a lot going on there and I think that uh, you know hopefully uh, you know we get to a point where we can actually begin to start uh, you know, dealing with these issues and actually making, you know, bringing people to the table, clear thinking people who are not doing it from a biased perspective and trying to get, you know, a way to deal with it. And, and, and I believe that the jury pool selection, I mean, we have to have some sort of really aggressive movement about making sure that in jury pools that we have a cross section of our communities represented in these jury pools. That has to happen. And, and I know that we've had, you know, uh, both of, all of my producers and the people involved in our organizations, we've been talking about that. Yeah. But that's putting the public back into public safety. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> it has been missing for so long. And when you look at some of the things to add on to what you said, because I'm in total agreement, uh, we've got to stop the embracement of the broken uh, windows policy. Mm -hmm. That's where so much of this started, uh, where, you know, uh, the, the lower crime on the totem pole was, was, was gone after as opposed to the larger crime. I think uh, in addition to that, we're talking about fundamentally, we have got to stop militarizing these communities because you breed just what you said, Ali, that, that soldier concept to where uh, the community is an adversary. Uh, we have to have community representation on these uh, broader police panels. They have to actually hear, you've got police boards that have no uh, members from the citizenry on those panels, so they're getting a one-sided perception of how things are going on out there and uh, what's happening. I think uh, we have already talked about 
training. Uh, you have definitely have to uh, watch uh, officers and the body cams. But again, the body cams we're, we're finding out, while in some cases they've proven to be a very good tool, but if I can basically to a large part, do what I want to with that body cam, it defeats the purpose, just like the situation that we just had where that body cam was actually turned off when the dialogue was uh, was had. And uh, I think uh, community oversight, uh, all police departments have to have a community oversight committee developed that can work with the police commission uh, to look at, evaluate, and determine if the best policies are being in place. And lastly, from a municipality standpoint, uh, the community uh, key people, key leadership that is validated from the community has to be in the process of policy development uh, when the cities and when the counties develop what their police policies are going to actually uh, be. At least they have to have a voice in terms of that normality being represented. Right, right. We definitely have to get the community involved. And that's one way to do do it a lot of times is actually getting the community actually involved in the process. I believe that what happens is that sometimes the communities tend to, you know, we've seen the protests, we've seen the outcry, we've seen the social media, we've seen all these things, but we're not seeing any changes. We've seen the, the town hall meetings, we've seen meeting with the police uh, chiefs, we've seen community already in it policing, we're seeing all these things and those things aren't really working. And to me, I think that, you know, from, from, from a firsthand perspective like ourselves, you, you know, to being an expert witness in these cases and our discussions and your activism, uh, we see that a lot of times it really boils down to a jury pool. And that's, that seems, like, and that seems like it's never the discussion. And, and what happens is when these, these communities have to go to these jury commissioners in their communities and make sure that when they call out a jury pool, that jury pool needs to be reflective of the communities in which these people live. And it's the same thing with police officers. If you're totally policing, off in, policing in this particular community, then the jury pool needs to be the people that you're policing. And, and that's how you're going to, to ultimately find, because until you're held accountable, I mean, it, it's unfortunately, that is just the, the nature of humans, mm -hmm. that oftentimes, when you're able to get away with something, you know you're going to get away with it. And some of these, yeah. some of these officers, they're kids. I mean, when I, when I, when I, you know, became a police officer, I was 22 years old. I was just out of the Marine Corps. But they recruit. They go after 19 and 20 year olds right. because this is a mindset that they know that they can form in the process. And it's the same thing with the military, same thing with the fire department. Most of your public safety entities want people that can follow a specific process structure, uh, infrastructure. Mm. So, you know, uh, uh, that, that's, that's, that's inherent. They, mm. they, they go after these officers. The other thing we've got to be very conscious of, see, they recruit a lot of these officers, and these, a lot of these officers request communities of colors to get their stripes. Let's call it like it mm. is. Uh, they want to go into communities where there's a lot of action mm. so they can prove themselves and get uh, uh, this, this, this garnership of expertise under their belt. And that also uh, has to be changed. 
The one thing I would say that we could do on the pro side for the police officers, and by no means, I will call out an officer, I will call out a department in a minute as I have, but one of the things I think we have to do for those officers that we do find that are community vested, that are trying to do the right thing at the end of the day, we've got to make sure we can support those officers and use them as an example, uh, as a counterbalance for these other officers, because if they don't get the type of community support, guess what, they're going up against the big blue line of the department itself. So now they're in a, a quandrum. Uh, they do, they're going against the police department because they try to do the right thing. Uh, the community's not giving them any support. So at the end of the day, they throw up their hands and say, well, hell, I might as well just pick me up a paycheck and do my job because, uh, you know, I, I, can't, I can't win on either side. Mm -hmm. So, and there are some community-based uh, officers out there that do an excellent job. But at the end of the day, until we change the whole thinking process, until we change their operational process, until we identify and not be afraid to go after and remove those officers that are damaging, that are destructive, that are doing the type of unwarranted cancer in these communities, uh, until we develop as a society and a police community the nerve, the backbone, the tenacity, and the wherewithal to address that, then at the end of the day, we're going to be revisiting this thing every other day, every other week every other year absolutely absolutely and and one of the things that I was actually you know thinking about as far as officers are concerned I remember I had um, um, my supervisor who was a lieutenant he told me that early in his career that basically it was more of the norm to become a police officer later in life in other words the latter <laughs> part of your 20s as opposed to the younger part of your 20s and I and I think that what happens is that you know, whenever you do a, a background check on a 22-year-old who just got out of college, just got out of the military, there's very little there. Nobody, and sometimes these officers, they play out their problems in the department. Yes. You know, and sometimes when that happens, obviously, if you're playing out your problems in your department, then, you know, uh, it's too late. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the things is, is just making sure that, you know, whenever we're evaluating officers to get in these departments, that they do a better selection process. But again, you know, going back to what we talked about, making these officers accountable, uh, that, that's, that's just so important. And then when you talk about the statistics, and, and I think that we were reading about the statistics on the, and what the statistics as far as the, um, the African-American uh, men, or African-Americans in general, the statistics between them being subjected to police shootings. Did you read on that? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, a big problem. I, I think that basically confirms everything that we've been saying. See, when you put a, a fact, a point out there, you always want to qualify that. And the facts in terms of uh, who is getting shot qualify everything uh, that we have said uh, in this last hour. And no disrespect men here, but look, we always talk about retraining in terms of protocol, but why is it that we never have to talk about and tell an officer he needs to be retrained when it comes to white people? Mm -hmm. It's only people of color that they need to be retrained. So that tells us it's a thinking process and not an operational process. Mm -hmm. You know, look, if my perception of a person of color is of a destructive nature, is of somebody that's going to do damage to me, is of somebody that uh, doesn't deserve the degree of humanization, 
guess what? I'm going to feel, and it goes back to the part of the concept that I do have the right to destroy this individual. I'm going to feel my actions against this individual are warranted to some degree because guess what? I don't see them on the same level uh, of value that I see myself. So I have a right to go in there because this person is an inherent risk to me and society. In the most part, a lot of times just based on my societal perception, what I've either seen in the news, what I've either heard on the radio, et cetera. Most of these younger officers, they don't even have enough damn life experience under their belt to have an evaluation to say what you and I or at the end of the day, what their expectations should be in terms of their relationship with us. Most of these officers are babies. So many of these officers have not even gotten out of their, uh, of their own comfort zone. So that evaluational process uh, is not even on board yet. Now, I will say this, when you talk about um, um, an officer, a uh, person of color, uh, etc., again, if I don't have any balance or anything to balance that imagery of that officer with, if I have had very few experiences with people of color, even if I came in there with a negated mindset that I have a right to do this, if I could pull up psychologically somebody uh, that was of color or that fit that to marginalized mold that could give me a counterbalance to that person I'm seeing, I might be able to pull myself back and say that is not the total norm. But they're seeing so many in our communities as the total norm, and they're making a, a valued statement that everybody under this banner uh, deserves this type of treatment, and I have the right to give it. Uh, it's happening too fast, and it's happening too much. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you uh, look at it as... It's like I know when I was growing up, we had this, this gang-banging type mentality. And if we went out and did something, we did it for status. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we saw the, when, you, when you took a life, you, you tattooed the little teardrop on your eye. When it comes to the officers, it seems as though they function in that same accord. They stick together with the code of silence. And I understand that there are some good cops, but how good can they be? if they see in all of this injustice going on and they still remain silent. Yes, that's what I was alluding to when I said it's on the onus of the so-called good officer to step to those bad officers. And see, stepping to those officers, that takes some sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Stepping to those officers, I mean, you might have to go up against the entire system and you're going to get a target on your back. Mm -hmm. A lot of those officers, even though they feel in their heart, want to step out and do the right thing, they fear the consequences of doing that right thing. So mm -hmm. going back to your initial question, look, when you look at the gang culture, you look at the actions, the characteristics, and the denominators in how a gang culture operates. I'm not going to label a person a gang member based on what he says or what somebody tells me. I'm going to watch what they do exactly. and then I'm going to interpret that in terms of they fit into this mode. Mm -hmm. The same thing with the officers. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at a fraternity. We, uh, a lot of the fraternities have the same common denominators of a gang set. Mm -hmm. So if they're acting like gang members, if they're doing the actions of what a gang member does, if they're ending up using the same type of processes that a gang member used, you damn straight as a gang culture, straight mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wanted to chime in also as well as on the, as the jury in regards to the jury that we talked about, you know, in the Stop at Frisk Academy several times. Um, I think we have a great responsibility that when we are called, you know, um, that, you know, we don't make those excuses uh, to get off the jury pool. 
In fact, we do what we can to sit on the jury pool. Now, the flip side of that is that the great majority of us that come from the African-American community, our economic status is not up there. So we can't sit on a jury pool for no whole week and be able to suffice for our family. And I understand in those cases, we have to pull ourselves off. But then also, you know, one of the general questions that is asked during that time is, have you ever had police encounter? Now, what African-American hasn't had any police accountable? And the thing about it is that is used as an excuse to excuse them from the jury. And so it's like you got a double-edged sword here. And, you know, there are some people who do try to get on jury, but the great majority of people are like, look, I got to go to work. I got a family to feed. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, you know, what do we stand in that situation? We got to have better advocacy. See, anything you do, and this is what I try to tell a lot of my young warriors and warriorettes who are out there in these movements. Okay, these are not movements, they're moments. A movement is sustained, excuse me, in the long term. If you're gonna be a part of the movement, there's collective sacrifice. If you're gonna be a part of the movement, there's an infrastructure that has to be built that's gonna determine how that movement moves. Part of any movement is having a strong advocacy arm. We mm -hmm. have got to change policies and laws at the end of the day, and this is what you're referring to, this is what Brother Ali referred to so effectively. The process of the jury system is incorrect and is not a fair process that everybody benefits from. So at the end of the day, until they actually change the charter structure of how the jury process is implemented, we are up against, uh, uh, we are up against the wall. We've got to stop operating on emotionalism and become far more strategic in our thinking and planning to make sure at the end of the day we can get long-term laws in place that are going to be beneficial to those communities that are adversely affected that we have some ownership and control of at the end of the day or at least have our voice in the process of how those laws are brought forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you want to, there's, there's different, you get different feedback as far as what, how juries are chosen. Some they say is from the voter registration. Some you say is from the DMV, uh, you know, registration. You know, it, it, I guess it just depends. But when you go to, um, you know, I've been in Compton, which is clearly a predominantly African-American mm -hmm. and Hispanic city where the entire jury pool was not, there was not one African-American and not any Hispanics. I've been to Inglewood mm -hmm. where there was not any African-Americans mm -hmm. and not any Hispanics on a jury pool. How does that happen? How is that absolutely Process. possible yeah. for something like that to happen? And, and you, know, you, you know, I'm not suggesting that someone who isn't of color cannot be fair and impartial. However, you need that wide perspective on the jury in order to do it. That's what exactly. we do. It's cross-cultural communication. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to assume I know your, your plight or I understand something unless I listen to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that's what we need to do. One of the things that we need to do in our schools is stop training people mm -hmm. and start educating yes. people mm -hmm. yes. and learning how to yes. communicate cross-culturally and mm -hmm. understand that we come from different perspectives, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, it, but I think this is what gives them to the go ahead to do what they do. Mm -hmm. is because they know what type of jury is made up, what the jury is right. made up of. So it's, you know, it gives me a, it gives me a green light to go ahead and do what I'm going to do because right. I'm going to be, at the end of the day, I'm going to be exonerated. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Know? 
or, or when they choose to prosecute people who should not be prosecuted because mm -hmm. they know that you can go with a very bare minimum of evidence in front of certain jury pools and you're going to have a better chance. And mm -hmm. like you said, I mean, one of the questions is always by a prosecutor during jury selection, who's ever had negative police compact, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. contact? Yeah. If you're from a minority community, you've had probably, or, or they'll say, you, do you know someone? Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, so then when you're when you exclude that person, mm -hmm. you're not you can't exclude them based upon race, but you can say, well, because I asked them who had negative police contact, mm -hmm. and they raised their hand mm -hmm. or they knew somebody, and they use that as a pretext to eliminate people exactly. of color, mm -hmm. you know. So I mean, we that's definitely something that has to change mm -hmm. before we really start seeing any kind of changes as far as the the system is concerned. But then that's going to take us to collectively unify and understand the concept of collective univism. See, one of the things we clearly understood in the 60s and why we were so effective was the concept of collective sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Meaning that at the end of the day, we might not personally benefit, but if the whole, the community would benefit by our actions, uh, we were mandated to implement those actions. We have got to become far more uh, unified in our thinking process. You know, the municipality, uh, uh, the council persons, the uh, the uh, supervisors, uh, they move based on contingency, excuse me, uh, their contingency of their uh, uh, people that they serve. So when you get those structured numbers, and then when you get those same people coming in with strategic plans, strategic solutions to show why a process uh, should be implemented and the results of that process, as opposed to emotionalism, there's nothing wrong with emotionalism, and we need the emotionalism, but at the end of the day, that emotionalism has to be guided by uh, action and achievable uh, uh, methodologies and concepts at the end of the day. Okay. Well, Doc, like always, I appreciate you, you coming in and, and, and lacing appreciate us with, with that knowledge because that definitely, you know, that was something that we needed to hear. I appreciate you coming in and um and, and and hopefully we'll be able to have some other discussions on this you got to yes. join us again because you 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 have a lot of that so um uh so i want everybody to tune in next week where we'll be discussing some more critical uh, criminal justice issues and from myself attorney zulu ali and from my justice watch crew rosa nunez and michael Balau clark clark thank you for joining us for justice watch with attorney zulu ali and i'll see you next week. Thank you. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM.